Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are holy, that you are loving, that you are compassionate, that you are powerful. Lord, we thank you that this opportunity to hear you speak in your word is what you've brought us here for. Father, we know that amidst the joys, the sorrows, the sufferings of this life, there are so many things that are on our minds and on our hearts that we've brought into this room and could potentially distract us from engaging with and worshiping you. And so I ask in this moment that your spirit would be leading and guiding both my words, my mouth, my thoughts, to only say what would glorify Jesus. But I also ask that your spirit would be moving and directing and leading the hearts of each and every person in this room to hear from, to respond, to know that you are great, and then to enjoy you. So, Father, we, I know that this can't be accomplished without you. And so I ask, Lord, that your word would indeed be our rule in all of life, that your spirit would be teaching us this morning and pressing upon our hearts the truths you want us to see. I pray that your glory would be our concern, our, our greatest goal, And Lord, I do ask that your son would be our ever-increasing joy. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we look forward to what you will do as your word goes out. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, what is the worst excuse you have ever made or heard from someone else? And, And teachers, teachers, I'm looking at you. Worst excuse you've ever made, you've ever heard, uh, dog ate the homework, Maybe out with your friends. Oh, I forgot my wallet. You mind you cover this one? See, none of us like to hear, and it's embarrassing to make excuses. And yet it's interesting when we open up this passage in Exodus 3, all the way to the second half of Exodus 4. Good job standing, by the way. That was not an easy one today. Um, But in this passage, we hear excuse after excuse after excuse And it's shockingly embarrassing because these excuses are coming from Moses to God. (laughs) From Moses to God. In Exodus, remember where we are. We're in the middle of the Midian Desert here. God has just showed up to Moses in the burning bush and telling him to go out. I'm going to be with you and, and rescue and deliver these people. And what do we hear from Moses? Well, God, I can't go. God, what about those people and their doubts? God, I can't speak. I don't have any power. I can't, I can't, I can't. See, Moses has five, actually, yeah, count them. If you want to go back through the text, there's like this waterfall of five excuses cascading from Moses' mouth onto God's ears. It's not pretty. And yet, what lies beneath Moses' excuses And his doubts is an inability to appreciate and see the greatness of God. See, the big idea in this text and for you and I this morning is this. Three words. God is great. The big idea for this morning, the big idea that we've already sung about in our songs, God is great. And so we're going to let God tell us how great he is as he patiently and powerfully answers each and every one of Moses' excuses which come in the form of three questions. Moses makes all these excuses, and at the heart of it, he's asking, God, who am I? How am I qualified? God, who are you that you could actually do this? And God, who are they? What about them and their doubts? What about the haters? 
So first and foremost, let's listen to God answer Moses' excuse and his question of who am I as we begin in verse 10 to 12. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 10. God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. All right, let's pick up from where we were. Moses, just another day at the office for him. In the first part of chapter 3, he's tending Jethro, his father-in-law's sheep, and he's on Mount Sinai. And then God descends to dwell amidst this burning bush that's burning but not consumed. And what Moses sees and experiences in that, in that moment is that God is holy, that he's loving, that he's eternal. And so you would think, if the ultimate divine deity had just spoken to you and showed up and told you something, you'd be ready to go. And that's not exactly how Moses responds. Listen to the first excuse from Moses. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God, me? Who am I? Are you sure you got the right guy? Here's what's going through Moses' mind when he's questioning God. God, have you seen my birth certificate? It says I'm 80. God, have you seen my resume? It says I'm a shepherd to my father-in-law's sheep. I'm so poor I don't have my own animals. God, have you seen my background check? It says I'm a murderer. And this people, the Hebrews, well, guess what? They don't like me anymore. And that nation and the king, Pharaoh, that you just mentioned, well, he wants me dead. God, who am I? that I should go and do what you just asked me to do. It sounds like God is sending a farmer into the operating room to do heart, heart surgery. And so Moses asked, who am I? And God answers with the only answer that Moses needs. Listen to verse 12. He said, God said, but I will be with you. <laughs> he doesn't say, Moses, you're going to do all right. He says, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God is graciously promising his presence and his power. He's not saying, hey, Moses, you're going to do all right. You got this. I, I think you are just the man for this. No. God says, I will be with you. The same thing he says all throughout scripture. I will be with you. And the other side of that coin, do not fear. I will be with you. Do not fear. I will bring the people up out of Egypt. There is no questioning in God's voice. It's not, I might be with you. They might come out. God is speaking words of assured victory and assured promises. And yet Moses is doubting. Why is Moses doubting? Because he's focused on the weakness in the mirror instead of the greatness at the altar. Moses is doubting because he's focused on the weakness in the mirror instead of the greatness at the altar. How many of your excuses to God have that same problem? When God burdens your heart, when he calls you to go and do something for his glory, by his power, for his purposes, how often are you and I, I am, I'll speak for myself, how often am I prone to make excuses because I'm focused on the weaknesses in the mirror when I look at myself instead of the greatness at the altar. Moses doesn't need greater self-esteem. 
I mean, maybe he does, and maybe a secular psychologist would say that. But Moses' greatest problem is not a self-esteem problem. It's a greatness of God problem. He has too low a view of how great God is. And so I remind you, Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, when you and I are struggling to know where our help comes from, it doesn't come from us trying hard enough to do our own things. It comes from Psalm 121, where it says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's whose help, that's where Moses is getting his help. Who am I? Well, really, you're a no one, Moses, but I've chosen you and I will be with you. And so go. That's Moses' first question. His second question is, who are you? Who are you, God? The most indicting of these questions. Look with me at verse 13, as if that weren't enough for Moses. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses, why do you need a name? You just saw this bush burning and not consumed. You just heard, holy, loving, eternal. You just heard a great commission. See, Moses is not so much asking for a first name, like a Mike or a Sarah. He's not asking for a first name. He's asking for, like, credentials, for a resume. He's questioning God's ability. Who are you, God? And God answers quite powerfully with a long list of attributes, beginning with this reality, I am self-sufficient. Look at verse 14. Some of the most famous words in the Old Testament now put in context. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me, has sent me to you. I am who I am. You know what that means in the original? I be who I be. <laughs> I be who I be. I need no one else. I am self-sufficient. Nothing else started without me. No one else depends on anything but me. I am who I am. See, Christianity affirms there is only one true God. It is the great I am. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one essence. And so how shocking when Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospel of John, and what does he claim to be? He claims to be God. And you know how he does that? With a bunch of I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus is God in the flesh. God is self-sufficient. Next, God is eternal. This is who I am. Who are you, God? Well, I'm self-sufficient and eternal. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the Lord, Notice it's in all caps for a reason, The Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, Has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am and the Lord. All caps, it means in the original, Yahweh, Jehovah. This is more akin to the first name of God. It's the only name prescribed just for the deity, 
just for God. He is the true God. He is the Lord. And it says, this is how I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. I'm the first, the last, the, the always reigning one, who was, who is, who is to come. I, the Lord, do not change, says in Malachi 3.6. God is self-sufficient. He is eternal. We, asked, we saw last week, he's holy, he's loving, he's unchanging, he's powerful, but not controllable. And yet, my great fear for us is that we would grow too comfortable with the Creator. That we would grow too casual to the God whom we just heard, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. See, Saturday evenings, I usually try to get away from anything and everything going on and just go and pray for you guys and pray over the sermon and pray for our church in light of knowing what God's Word is about to say to us. And the thing that he kept impressing upon me is don't become casual to the greatness of God. So many of our problems in life, like 99% of my problems in life, my struggles in life, are because I forget how great God is. My sin struggles, my doubts and suffering, I forget how great God is. I don't want us to become too casual with the Creator. His greatness must, must, must inspire gravity and gladness in who He is. His greatness must inspire gravity and gladness. See, Jesus hasn't come. God didn't show up to Moses just so He could be His friend or a genie or even the best doctor. Yes, God is great and He fulfills all those roles that we long for in relationship to the nth degree. God hasn't given us his word, though, to be treated like a Google search tab. What can I get from God today? God has showed up. God has drawn near. God has spoken to us in order that we would revere him, that we would love him, that we would know him, that we would love and worship him. And this is what we hear resounding throughout all of scripture. On the screen behind me, there's going to be a couple passages where God speaks about his greatness in order that we would respond in reverence. Let's begin with Isaiah 6, verse 3, another famous passage. What is God? Isaiah sees the pre-incarnate Christ, and this is, these are his words. Holy, holy, holy. As if he could say it a thousand times over and it'd be enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Perfect and purity and majesty, totally different from us in every way. Psalm 138, God says, I have exalted above all things my name and my word, above all things, even your desires and my good gifts, my name and my word. Romans 11:36, for from him and to him and through him are all things. Everything comes from, for, and through God. Psalm 145, which Matt opened us with this morning, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Guys, the question I have for you, does his greatness inspire reverence? Are you just vaguely lukewarm, comfortable with the God of the universe, with the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh? Lord, let us repent. Let us repent if that's where we are today, where we've come in here, here today just hoping to hear a pep talk, and go out and think better of ourselves. Moses' 
problem wasn't a self-esteem problem. It was a greatness of God problem. My problem is not a self-esteem problem. It's a greatness of God problem. My greatest problem is not a lack of happiness. It's a lack of holiness. God is perfectly holy, and he draws near to us. Thankfully, he's also compassionate so that we could know him. See, God is the Lord. He is self-sufficient. He is eternal. And next we see that he is compassionate enough to bring us close and use us for his purposes. Look at verse 16 with me. God continues speaking. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has appeared saying, listen to this, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Yes, this was another day at the office for Moses, shepherding the sheep, but it was also another day of intense hardship and slavery for the rest of the Hebrews back in Egypt. They're longing for a deliverer. They're waiting for God to fulfill his promises made in chapter 2, where he said, I hear, I see, I know, and I remember my people. And here God says, I have observed them. I will come and rescue them. God is a compassionate God. How does the compassion of God invite you to cry out to him amidst your suffering today? I'm not the only one in suffering. I would venture to say, if you're not in suffering, you're probably lying to some degree, shape, or form. How does the compassion of God, coupled with the power of God, invite you to cast your cares and anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for you? God is compassionate, and next he is faithful. Verse 17, And I promise, oh my goodness, what good words to hear from the God of the universe. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. He promises. It means he makes a covenant. He enters into an agreement where he binds himself to pursue our good, his people's good, even at cost to himself. That's why later in Hebrews it says that Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant, the oath that God has bound himself to pursue our good, even at cost to himself, giving his son to die for unholy sinners like you and I. God makes promises, and he's faithful enough to keep every single one of them, and he's powerful enough to make sure they're each accomplished. Let's continue on in verse 19. God says to Moses, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do with that. And after that, he will let you go. I promise to help, and now I'm powerful to save. See, God knows that Pharaoh ain't going to participate in this plan, except to oppose it. And so God says, I will accomplish it. See, for like 400 years, about 400 years, all the hands of Egypt have been stretched out against God's people, trying to inflict upon them the worst of all suffering. And here God says, in one fell swoop, I am going to stretch out my singular powerful hand and I will crush Pharaoh. He says, I will strike them and he will let you go. There is no doubt 
and the power of God's hand. There is no question in what's going to happen. And spoiler, spoiler alert, this happens. God does bring them out of Egypt. Exodus 12 is coming. These promises will be fulfilled. God's singular, powerful hand delivers. And here's how it becomes good news for you and I. See, in Egypt, it looked like the powerful hand of Pharaoh and death would forever reign. But God delivered. In our lives, it so often looked like, and it began at birth, that the powerful hand of sin, Satan, and death would forever have his grip over us. And here's why. See, you and I, we were made to know, love, and worship God. That's what God desired for us. But unfortunately, we have, been, we have fallen in sin. We have chosen by nature and choice to love, live for, and build our lives around our desires and God's gifts. We don't love and worship God as the Lord, as Jehovah, as Yahweh, like He deserves. Again, our greatest problem is a holiness problem. We have fallen short in our sin. We are separated from God in our sin. We are unholy. He is holy. Just like Moses couldn't draw near to God until his sandals were taken off, we can't come near to this great, eternal, compassionate God unless our sin is forgiven. A holiness problem. And yet God offers what we don't deserve and can never earn. He uses his powerful hand to give us the greatest gift of all time. And that comes in the form of Jesus Christ, our ultimate deliverer, the deliverer whom Moses points to. In all his imperfections, we see the perfection of Jesus. Here's what Jesus has done to deliver us from the powerful hand of sin, Satan, and death. He's come down into our bondage, into the desert of our disobedience. And he lived the life that you and I failed to. And then on the cross, he died a very real, bloody, sacrificial death, dying the death that your sin and my sin deserves. See, our great shepherd, the great I am, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And yet, the good news for the Christian would not be good news if the story ended in a tomb, would it? if the darkness of death were the period on the story of Christianity, we wouldn't be gathering 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. But you and I know that's not how the story ends. Exodus 3 is not how the story ends. It points to Exodus 12 when God delivers. The tomb is not how the story ends. It points to three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. See, after three days, the light of the world extinguished the darkness of death. After three days, the powerful hand of God pushed back that stone and the powerful Son of God rose from the dead. Acts 2.24 says it was impossible for the pangs of death to hold him. Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. After three days, our Savior put death to death. He walked out of that tomb alive. And the good news for everyone, everyone who comes to believe in Him, to call upon the name of Jesus unto salvation, everyone who believes in Him for the forgiveness of their sin and reconciliation with God will also be raised from the dead 
because Jesus got up, so too will all who believe in Christ Jesus. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh, Jehovah, the one who deserves your reverence, your adoration, your affection, your everything. He is living. He is reigning, just like God in Exodus, active, not absent, moving, even if not explaining, the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. The tomb is empty, guys, and the throne is occupied. Praise God. Have you believed in him? Have you believed in him? See, I ask this question because this good news requires a response. I'm not asking, have you come to church every day for your entire life? I'm not asking if you filled up the offering plate today. I'm not asking if you got your behavior together this week. I'm asking, have you believed in Jesus Christ to forgive your sin personally. See, that's the invitation he came to make. He so longs for you to be with his heavenly father forever that he invites and, and, and calls out to us. And Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus. Would you believe in him? And if you have, would you depend on him? How might the empty tomb and the power of God inspire you to depend on him this week? Where might you be making excuses to God saying, who am I? Who are you? I know you've called me to do this, that, and the other, but I can't do it. Are you going to be able to do it, God? Where might the empty tomb of Jesus Christ speak a word of fresh dependence when you consider the greatness of God who calls you to these tasks? How does the power of God enable and encourage you to go out for the purposes of God? Consider that in your lives this week. Who am I? Who are you? One last question. Believe it or not, Moses got another one. What about them? Let's look at chapter 4. Then Moses said, my, my goodness, can, can we just pause and say, Moses, would you stop talking back to God? Would you stop it? But then Moses said, but behold, what? Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. My goodness, Moses, why so fickle in your faith? The Lord just appeared to you. He just spoke to you. He just told you what's going to happen, and there was no doubt in his voice. And yet Moses here asks another question, begs another excuse. What he's saying, the hater's going to hate. He's saying those people, they're going to doubt. And I'm not so sure it's the problem is with the people. It sounds like the problem was with Moses. He's asking something that God hasn't said would happen. And so God graciously and powerfully says, that's not going to happen. And in verse 2 to 9, as we heard, and we'll unpack further in another sermon, God gives him three miraculous signs, doesn't he? Remember, he turns a staff into a snake and then back. He turns a healthy hand into a leprous hand and then back. And then he promises to turn water from the Nile River into blood and then back. And all of these signs, God's not trying to create a circus or do magic tricks. They have a purpose. 
verse 5 of chapter 4 is what that purpose is. Listen to verse 5. That they may believe, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. God is after our belief. God is not just after your agreement, your acknowledgement of him and his deity. God is after your heart. He's after your belief. He wants your adoration and affection, not just affirmation. He hasn't done all this to create a circus, to do magic tricks for us to say, wow, and go home and have a nice lunch. He's saying, I want you to believe in me. I want you to know me, my greatness, and I want you to go and speak for me wherever I send you. And here's the problem. You won't live for the glory of God unless you love the God of all glory. You won't live. I won't live for the glory of God unless you love the God of all glory. He wants you to believe down in your heart so much so that you love him. You would do anything for him because he's done everything for you. That's the whole reason the Gospels were written. The Apostle John says at the end in John chapter 20, verse 31, these are all written. He says, I could write books and books and books to chronicle what Jesus has done, and there wouldn't be enough room. But in John chapter 20, verse 31, he summarizes what he's saying. He says, these are all written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you may have life in his name. Moses had three questions. Who am I? Who are you? What about them? I have one question. Are you believing today? Are you believing first unto salvation? If you've yet to give Jesus your sin and receive his forgiveness, would you believe in him? Would you respond to him and give him your sin and receive his forgiveness? And if you have done that, would you believe in him? Not new unto salvation. We would believe once unto salvation. But would you believe in him as your Lord and your Savior? That wherever he's calling you, whatever he's asking you to do, that you would know he's going with you. The same promise that Jesus gave to his first followers, that he said, go baptize, teach them, and help them to observe all that I have taught you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That's the promise we have. His Holy Spirit now living in us as Christians, leading and guiding, empowering us to speak and to do. Moses said, I don't know what to say or to do. You and I, we make those excuses all the time. God, I can't say, do those things, share this good news with my colleagues, with my lost family members. I will be with you. I will be with you. makes all the difference. Are you believing in him? And if you are believing in him, where might you go this week? Whom might you speak to? What might you do differently this week in light of the greatness of God? See, the whole point of this exchange, this conversation between Moses and God, God could have made this conversation as short as he wanted to. He allowed it to go on, graciously showing that he is great. The whole point of my time with you all this morning is that we would see the greatness of God. Have you seen how great God is? And now are you ready to go and live for the God who is great? I encourage us to leave this room in a posture of adoration and affection for the one who gave his son so that we could live, even though it required his death. For the one who answers all of our questions with gracious patience and power. 
The one who answers the bad news of sin, Satan, and death with the good news of eternal life. He is great. Would you believe in him? What we're going to do now is we're going to respond in song. We're going to respond in prayer. We're going to respond by taking and eating the Lord's Supper, remembering that his body was broken, his blood was poured out, so that all who come to him would never die. They would never thirst, but would live eternally and never hunger or thirst, but would see that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And so as that happens, I'm also going to invite you, if you have some way that you'd like to be prayed for by someone else, an elder or someone else in the congregation, put your hand up, stand up, or come to the front. And if you see someone who would like prayer and you're sitting next to them, I invite you to pray for them. If I don't see anyone praying for them, I'll go pray for them. But I, I would love for us to establish this one another culture where we pray for the needs that we share. So we're going to take, we're going to eat, we're going to pray, and we're going to sing. We're going to sing to the God who is great. And we're going to let our hearts adore him this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are great. And yet we don't even understand how great you are. Your greatness is unsearchable. And Lord, we acknowledge that with as much as we can understand, you are the Lord, you are Jehovah, Yahweh, you are the great I Am. Lord, let us increasingly savor you. Let us increasingly exalt your name. And God, let us never become casual or comfortable with you, the eternal creator. God, let your greatness inspire reverence in our hearts, this adoration and affection, because you are the only true God. Lord, do this in us, because we need to know you, we need to love you, depend on you, and we need that ever-increasing. And so we ask you to accomplish this for your glory, by your power. It's all in your Son's name we ask these things. Amen.